Good, good morning. There we go. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the insert. Um, we're looking at a number of passages this morning, although to try to keep it reasonable for you all, um, only the four big ones that you see there in bold will I be asking everyone to turn to. Um, we're going to continue this morning um, a mini-series titled, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We're trying to examine just how much information could be known prior to Jesus' birth. We know that after the incarnation, much new information is added um, and, and, and dots are put together. But it's clear from those living in Jesus' day, there was a messianic expectation. And I think we're to understand in part why the incarnation is so glorious, because this growing anticipation, this growing excitement, this growing longing, and he's finally here. God has finally, we looked at this last week, sent the seed of the woman who would conquer the serpent, who would crush his head underfoot. God has sent a promised child of a miraculous birth. And we tracked from the garden to Abraham that promise of that seed, that coming descendant. And there are a lot of threads we could follow. This morning, I want to follow, pick up from the, the promise to the woman of the seed, but pick up a, the thread of rule, kingship. And we sang about it just now in our last song. And in, in Matthew's gospel, we read this in chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So as we, with our mind's eye, consider the birth of Christ, and we can see in that manger the one who is the seed of the woman. This is the, the victorious conqueror who will defeat death and the devil. But also, here is one who is born king. Even as this text in Matthew tells us there was a king, Herod, in that day, here is the child born king, and we're to follow that thread, at least somewhat, this morning. And I'm looking at this in three points, predictions of kingship and rule, promises of a royal dynasty, and prophecies of David's greater son. Now, these first three texts that I've got here, which I'm not asking you to turn to, you're, you're welcome to. We're going to move somewhat quickly. I find fascinating. This is where the thread begins. When does the Bible first start to unite to the woman's seed, to Abraham's offspring, some coming promises of rule, of kingdom, of conquest? Well, it starts in Genesis. Um, the, the promise has already been narrowed down to Isaac. Isaac has twin sons, and the promise is narrowed further. As God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, even while they were in the womb. And then Jacob's descendants go to Egypt because of Joseph. And at the end of his life, the patriarch Jacob prophesies, blesses his sons. And in Genesis 49, the blessing given to Judah is notable. This is, I think, the first instance where kingship rule begins. It's just beginning here. By the time we get to David, it'll be full-fledged. But listen to the prophecy over Judah. Now remember, we're in the narrow chosen seed. We're in that narrow line. And now being added on top of that is this. Genesis 49, 9, 10, and 11. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now here's the first mention I can find where rule, kingship, we have a scepter and a ruler's staff, an obedient people. And now it's joined even narrower, not just to the seed of the woman, not just to Abraham's seed, but to the tribe of Judah. So we have the lion of the tribe of Judah. This, this is a title Christ receives in Revelation 5.5. 5, when John is dismayed because there's no one who can open the scroll, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll. And that all begins right here. I mean, just how much messianic theology is just in Genesis. But we need, we need to move on. This is when it's introduced. Our next point that I can find this gets picked up is from an interesting source, Balaam. You remember Balaam? As Israel, 400 years later than Jacob, because they're in Egypt for 400 years, Israel is entering into the promised land as they're beginning, about to begin the conquest. Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, and he can't. He keeps blessing them. Four times this happens. And in the fourth oracle, we get our next note of kingship and rule. Verse uh, 24, Numbers, starting in verse 15, he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Now, this is probably, in the first instance, looking forward to King David. King David is going to defeat these peoples. But yet, as we're looking at this one coming or exercise dominion, and we know David is, is standing in a line with Christ and his kingdom coming behind him. This is the only connection I could find. If you think of it, what did the Magi see in the sky? A star. We saw his star. And this is possibly a reference to that. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balak is very disappointed and chagrined when the prophet he hired to curse his enemies, blesses his enemies, and curses his own people. But here's a second note of, we're looking for some coming king, some coming ruler, and he's going to exercise dominion, at least in the first instance locally. We're just naming local powers and nations, but that's going to grow. So Jacob prophesying over his kids, a scepter and rule is going to be united with Judah. Here, this coming ruler is going to destroy, defeat, dispossess his immediate neighbors. The next place this gets picked up that I'm aware of is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You remember Hannah comes and is weeping. She wants a child. She's praying. Eli thinks she's drunk. And the Lord hears her prayer, and he opens her womb, and, and she's given a son, and she keeps her word, and she gives him to the Lord. She brings him to the temple, and she prays a prayer of, of rejoicing and victory to God. 
This prayer in 1 Samuel 2 is actually what Mary models the Magnificat off of. Or if not modeling, Mary's got this in mind. The Magnificat and Hannah's prayer have striking structural similarities. And Hannah's been reading her Bible. And Hannah's going to put together points that I don't know many other people put together. I got the reference there. We're not going to look at it. But in Deuteronomy 17, Moses makes it clear. The people can have, they one day will ask for a king. They can get a king. And then some rules for kings are given. They're not to multiply wives or to have a handwritten copy of the book of the law, which has to be approved by the priest. So, so there is some antecedent for this notion of kingship. And certainly we have the prophecy of Jacob. But listen to this. Verse 9 and 10, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's actually put together king and anointed. And remember, anointed is English for Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah, which in Greek is Christos, Christ. Remember, Messiah, Christ, and anointed are Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same thing. And she's put together king and Messiah here. And she's at the top of her class. This woman has studied her Bible. Some suggestion that perhaps, because of the way the, the poetic parallelism works, we're quite possibly talking with the same individual. It'll become clear as we move further along this thread, we absolutely are. So, to recap, prior to David, starting with Jacob, there's going to be a scepter. There's going to be rule. It's going to be tied to the tribe of Judah. Balaam. There is going to be a coming ruler. He's going to dispossess the enemies of Israel around them. Hannah. The Lord has a king who's coming. The Lord has a Messiah who's coming. And the Lord will give strength to him. Okay? This sets the stage then, if you'll turn to 2 Samuel 7, to the covenant God makes, the promise of a royal dynasty. Dynasty, sorry. Sorry, Greg. He gets mad at me when I say it the British way. Um, promise of a royal dynasty. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I know you're familiar with this text. And all of these texts are so rich. Part of the difficulty of pulling one of these threads is we're just going to spend a few minutes at texts we could spend months on. But you remembered David wants to build a house for God. He looks at the, the luxury he lives in. And the, the ark of God is still dwelling in a tent. And so David calls um, Nathan and, and suggests this to him. Nathan doesn't inquire the Lord. He says, that sounds good to me. And then God speaks up, and God's going to say, no, 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 no. He's going to correct David, but he's pleased with David. The desire pleases God. And we read the Davidic covenant. And this is, this is a key passage in your Bible. You should know this. Um, 2 Samuel 7. We'll take it in the middle of uh, verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, that same play on words that works in English, where house can mean a dynasty or house can mean a physical structure, works in Hebrew. So David wants to build a house, physical structure for God. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you, dynasty. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I just want to draw three points from this. This is a key passage and it gets referenced at many points in Scripture. I put in the references there, Psalm 89. I don't know if we'll have time for me to read them, but you can go read that. This is a big deal. This covenant is, is a big deal. It is huge in messianic um, study. It's huge in the unfolding story of redemption. And I just want to see three, three points here. One, David has promised an unending dynasty. Now, this doesn't demand an eternal progeny. You could have this by an unending pattern of king who has a son, who becomes king who has a son, world without end, amen. But we do know it's eternal. It's not going to end. It's not going to stop. And that's seen in stark contrast to Saul. Saul begins a dynasty, and it ends in one generation. And David, that won't be the case. An unending dynasty. Eternal dynasty. A house that stays built, never crumbles. Second, a unique relationship. A unique relationship. Now, before you go and immediately apply this to Jesus... It becomes clear that in the first instance, the very first instance, this text is about Solomon. How do I know that? Two reasons. One, the person the Lord has in view is going to sin. So we're not talking about Jesus. When he commits sin, right, I will discipline him with the rods of men. And Solomon is going to multiply wives. He's going to go after other gods. He'll return in his old age. And Solomon is the one who, in the first instance, will build the temple. So, yes, ultimately this gets us to Jesus, but it doesn't skip over David's descendants. It goes through them. Because Solomon is absolutely in view in the first instance. In fact, on his deathbed, David calls Solomon to him in 1 Kings chapter 2, and he recites the words of this covenant to him. Listen to this. 1 Kings 2, 1 to 4. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying... I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke to me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David reminds Solomon, God made a promise to me. And if you're faithful, he'll keep it in you. So it is a unique relationship. And I think the understanding is that on the day Solomon and Solomon's descendants enter into rule, they will enter into a sonship relationship with God. This is the sort of functional sonship that Jesus can use. Blessed are peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. On earth, in the theocracy of Israel, this Davidic king stands for, represents God. 
If he's doing his job properly, his judgments reflect God's judgments. And in that sense, God can be a father of him, he can be a son. I think that's what it means for Solomon. I think that's how Psalm 2 is going to apply it. But this is going somewhere beyond them. So an unending dynasty, a unique relationship, and point three, an eternal covenant. And probably what must have been most um, comforting to David is this point. It can't be broken. It's sin-proof. Saul started out great. He started out great. And through two failures, primarily two failures, he had plenty more. But first, in offering the unauthorized sacrifice, he loses the dynasty. In, in, in sparing Agag and setting up a gold statue of himself, he loses the throne. And David saw the man whom God's spirit had descended depart him. And so I'm sure if I were David, I'd be wondering, well, what if I do the same thing? I mean, you're not supposed to read the Bible and think these people are morons. You're supposed to read the Bible and go there, but the grace of God go I. Well, here the Lord God says to David, don't worry. When your son, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men. I may even take them off to Babylon. With the stripes of men and the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. This is a covenant that cannot be broken by sin. A particular king can invite discipline and judgment and a beating, as it were, by his faithlessness. But the covenant will not end. This dynasty will continue. Your throne will be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's un. Breakable. It's an eternal covenant. So this is God's covenant with David. David wants to make a house for God. God says, no, 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 no. I take the initiative in salvation history. I'll make a house for you. Now turn to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2. You'll recognize the language of the Davidic covenant in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is quite possibly uh, written around the coronation of the Davidic king, David, or, or potentially one of his sons. It's not titled. And Psalm 2 brings together, if you think of headwaters, where different tributaries join in to make a river deep and powerful, three tributaries join up in Psalm 2. And so for our study of the Messiah and what to expect coming it's, it's, it's enormous in its importance. You'll notice that in Psalm 2, just about everything is said twice, two different ways. So in the first verse, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We're, we're not looking at two things. We're looking at one described two ways. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take their counsel together. Again, we're not envisioning one group kings and one group rulers. We're describing the same group of people two ways. This is poetic parallelism. And in that parallelism, in each set of three verses, in each stanza, two people are present. One is the Lord. You see that in verse 2. They take counsel against the Lord. And then here's the other person. And against his anointed. So the Lord and his anointed in 2.2. Look at the second stanza. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord, there he is, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we've got the Lord and his anointed in the first stanza, the Lord and his king in the second stanza, and then picking up the Davidic covenant language in verse 7, we get another pair. I will tell of the decree 
The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so what we learn in Psalm 2, remarkably, is that the Lord's Christ is his son and king. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, whichever language you prefer, is the king, is the son. See what I'm talking about? Three tributaries joining up. The chosen seed of the woman is the Messiah, is the king, is the son of the Lord. And whereas this psalm, recounting the promise of David, may be written for an inauguration of the king, because the idea being, I think, that when the Davidic heir enters into his rule, he enters into this special father-son relationship with God. The New Testament applies verse 7 in three places to the resurrected Lord. So the Lord's Christ is his son and is his king, which Luke one thirty two, Luke's birth narrative, the angel telling Mary he will be great, he will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Yeah, this, is, this is ultimately getting to Jesus because this king will rule and judge the world. Back when we looked at Balaam, it was just the immediate area, the immediate enemies. But here, this, this is a global rule. This far exceeds anything David ever did or dreamt of doing in his lifetime. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Because point three, what becomes clear in Psalm 2 is where this may have been written for some David or one of his sons to celebrate, to, to rejoice in their ascension as king. The, man, the one ultimately spoken of in Psalm 2 can't be David. He is greater than David. Clearly greater than David. This is someone with a worldwide rule. This is someone, look at verse 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise... Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This Davidic Son will rule the world. He will dash the nations in two with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. Three times that rod of iron language gets picked up again in the New Testament. In every instance in the book of Revelation. Let me just read one of them to you. Revelation 19, 14 to 17. About the second coming. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, what did the people of Jesus' day when he was born know? They knew in Psalm 2, the coming Messiah was the coming King, was the coming Son. All that building upon God's covenant with David. So, the woman is promised 
A seed, a descendant of hers, will defeat the serpent. That promise gets narrowed down to Abraham. A covenant of salvation gets added. It gets narrowed further as Jacob, not Esau. As Judah then gets the promise of rule. As a pagan prophet, speaking better than he knows, prophesies that a star and a scepter will come from Jacob. As Hannah puts together Messiah and King praying, Well, here, God making a covenant with David establishes an eternal dynasty from David's descent, which is why the the birth narratives contain, two of them contain the genealogies, because God keeps his word and he wants to be seen to keep his word. And so as you you read the birth narratives, this, this child born king of the Jews is this Davidic heir. This, this child that angels are celebrating over, that the shepherds come, that the magi come to worship, is the one who will, with a rod of iron, dash the nations like a potter's vessel. This is the one born king. He's born king. He's born king. Well, now, through salvation history, the, 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 the threads become many. Um, One of the reasons I like the first part of this is the beginning of the thread of kingship is pretty narrow and it's pretty precise and you can follow it along. But once you get to David, they just multiply. And so in a very real sense, I'm just grabbing two other texts. I could have grabbed 20 building upon this. Once once you get to David and the covenant with David, all sorts of of Old Testament authors develop and run with this. We're going to look at two, two in particular, trying to put some more... um, Detail on this coming king, giving some, filling in some more detail of who this infant is in the manger. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This is written probably 740 BC, somewhere in there. We've jumped ahead another couple hundred years. And the immediate plight facing Israel is the threat of Syria and Phoenicia. And Isaiah writes this, in chapter 9, in a passage that Handel will put to music in just a little bit, and you'll see. Um, pick it up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day at Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Which is a way to say you've delivered them and the warfare is over. We can dispose of the boots and the clothes. Why? For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There shall be no end. And then making it clear, in case there's any doubt, we're tying this to David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom 
Okay, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel's worried about the threat of Syria and Phoenicia, and they get a word of encouragement. There will come a day where all yokes of oppression will be cast off and broken. There will come a day where wars will cease. Why? Because there's going to be a child that's going to be born. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. This is the baby in the manger. This is the one who is born king of the Jews. And, and look at the language. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So much here. Look at three things. Three things I want to grab from here. One, this child will bring light and joy into this world. This child will bring light and joy. And this is a theme picked up in the New Testament. If you, I'll just read it to you. But in Luke chapter 1, listen to Zechariah prophesying when he's finally able to speak at the birth of his son and the one to whom his son will go before. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is how they understood it. This is how they understood the significance of this coming Messiah. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days. And you, child, now he's speaking to young baby John, the future Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And this child coming into the world will bring that light. Now the light here is understanding of truth, a light that reveals and shows us for who we are, God, for who he is, our sin for what it is, a light by which we can truly see. And this child born in the manger, is truly a cause for great joy. Simeon rejoices and gets to hold the Lord's anointed Christ when he's brought to the temple. So we see that in this passage. Second, the child and son, the one spoken to us, the child and the son, is clearly divine. Clearly divine. Some um, more liberal Christians try to argue that the divinity of Jesus is as a later addition. It's, it predates him by over a thousand years. Look at, look at the titles of this child. What shall he be called? Mighty God. I'll give you a little hint. The Israelites are not cool with you calling people mighty God unless they are, in fact, mighty God. Blasphemy and taking the name of the Lord in vain was a, a capital offense. 
This child will be called Mighty God. The, the Magi come to worship him. This child is divine. Divine. And he will rule an everlasting kingdom. He will rule an everlasting kingdom. Again, picking up in the Davidic covenant language, look at verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is just one passage that takes the Davidic covenant, the promise of a coming king, and just pours more information into it. We've got one who is going to be a divine being, and yet born, a child, a son. He will bring light and joy into this world, and he will rule an everlasting kingdom. Okay, let's turn to our last passage. Um, Jim read it this morning, Micah 5. Turn to Micah chapter 5. About the same time period, late 6th century, early 7th century B.C., so maybe 40, 50 years closer to Jesus' birth than Isaiah, maybe. And here, the threat that they're worried about is Assyria and Babylon, most likely, as we can understand. And another infusion of messianic truth, developing our understanding of things, is given here. A well-known passage. Um, five, we'll start in verse one. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid upon us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So again, we have messianic prediction. We're taking this theme of kingship and rule, and now we've got a city of birth. We saw that at the beginning when the, when the wise men come in Matthew chapter 1. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They understood this. They, they, even they had put this together. Four things from this passage. First, most obviously, the king will be born in Bethlehem. House of David. I believe Bethlehem, literally house of bread. It's where David was born. It's fitting that the great David's greater son is going to be born in David's town of birth. And the New Testament makes that abundantly clear. Second, this king is 
eternal. This king is eternal. We saw he was divine in the last passage. Here, he has no beginning. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Which is to say he has no beginning. As far back as you can go, there he is. Or as John says in his gospel, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, the word's being already there. This is an eternal being. Jesus confirms this in his ministry in John chapter 8, when he tells the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. But all this is, is here, and this isn't hard to see. This is, is right there. His coming forth is from old, from of ancient days. <clears throat> but now we get two additional pieces that I want to focus the rest of our time on. The first, this king will shepherd his people. We've seen this king will rule the rod of iron. This king will strike down his enemies. This king will dash the nations like pottery fragments. But lest you think this king is just a violent, fierce warrior, he's a tender shepherd as well. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And as we look again, this child in the manger, this is the one who's king. This is the one who will defeat the nations. This is the one who will return and with the sword of his mouth, strike down his enemies. And this is the good shepherd. Again, in John chapter 10, how does Jesus identify himself? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And time will not permit for us to go and follow this whole thread of the shepherd. But here it's united again with the king, with the son, with the Messiah, with the seed of the woman. And notice that last sentence. He shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. The king will be his people's peace. And this is a passage that Paul in Ephesians that we just finished studying I believe quotes, if not quotes, directly references. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. You described previously our former alienated, condemned position. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So let me, let me try to tie this all together now. As we approach Christmas, as we in our minds I turn towards the events that happened at the beginning of the Gospels 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, what do we find there? And my, and my desire in looking at it this way is that we would see move through the sentimentality. Sentimentality is not bad, but we want to see more than that. Who is this baby? Why is this wonderful? Why are angels rejoicing? Why are wise men coming from afar to worship? Well, last week we understood this child is the seed of the woman. This is the one who will defeat the devil. This is the one who will put to death death. This is the one through whom the Lord will make an eternal covenant of salvation for his people. This baby in the manger. Well, now we're learning this is God's chosen king. This is his Messiah. 
This is his son. And we learn from Micah that you can relate to this king in one of two ways. This can be the king who destroys you with a rod of iron. Who dashes you to pieces like a potter's vessel. And you can read the book of Revelation and see how absolutely decisive and final his victory is. This is the king against whom there is no resistance. This is also a shepherd who cares for his flock. And so I trust for those of us who are here this morning, he is your king, not the one fighting against you, but fighting for you. And he is also your shepherd. And so this Christmas, I would ask you to consider, are you celebrating your king? Do you have a king? Do you act like someone under the authority of an absolute potentate? Or do you act like a free agent? You want this king. You want to be his subject and not his enemy. This baby in the manger will destroy the nations of the world. This baby in the manger will shepherd his flock. It is good news for his subjects that he is born. It is good news for his people that he has come. The angels said it this way. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I invite you um, this week to worship the son of David, the son of God, the prince of peace the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the one who holds the star and the scepter, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's son, the Lord's king. But also make sure he's your king. Delight in that, his rule in your life and his shepherding of you. This is why the incarnation is good news. God has kept his word. God has sent his son. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our closing song. I think quite fittingly chosen, good Christian men rejoice.